0: Welcome to Jedi Master's Degree. I'm Biggs. Today we're going to do the Empire Strikes Back Act 1 as well as the pre-production of the movie. But first I want to remind you I have an email address to reach me. It's Jedi Degree at gmail.com. Let me know what you like, what you don't like, and what you'd like to hear in season 2. Season 1 is in the books right now, but I'm always listening for what I can do for future seasons. Let's start out by talking about the pre-production for the Empire Strikes Back. So George Lucas told Fox that he would finance the Film and make it independently. He would use Fox to distribute it. He wanted to do this so he had complete creative control and it was understood with Fox that he would indeed have complete control. The budget was about 50% higher than the previous one was. If you remember, Star Wars was set at $11 million. This was estimated to be $18 million. Of course, it would be a lot more by the end, but George Lucas paid for it by taking out a huge loan at a bank like anybody would do starting out companies. The film went over time and went $10 million over budget because a lot of the Cloud City scenes were needing to be reshot to have a little more subtle emotionality to them. Uh, there was some other the reasons to a lot of other reasons. It was a troubled shoot, to put it lightly. Uh, the British pound also became more valuable than the dollar during the shoot, which added another $3 million to the movie. Lucas found the remaining money by selling $20 million in merch in 1978. So that was a pretty big chunk of change. So anybody who rips on Star Wars merchandising and says that it's insane, which it is, just keep in mind we wouldn't have a Star Wars franchise if it wasn't for the merchandise. Francis Ford Coppola also tried to finance his own movie with the bank for Apocalypse. Now he wound up putting himself into debt and having to work through the studio systems. That's how you get movies like Godfather 3 where Coppola had made an amazing movie in The Godfather. He had made an even more amazing movie in my estimation in The Godfather 2 because the studio had to back off and let Coppola do whatever he wanted to do. But by Godfather 3 he had no control whatsoever. So this is the guy who George Lucas is trying to do with Francis Ford Coppola is doing. They're really good friends. As you might recall, George Lucas was gonna work on Apocalypse Now and decided to do Star Wars instead. So they were good friends. He was copying this and this worked out okay for George Lucas in the end, but it did not work out for Francis Ford Coppola. Francis Ford Coppola's bank loan looked like it wouldn't be paid back. It spooked the bank, which caused George Lucas's loan to be revoked and sold off to another bank, which made the budget raised to a total of $33 $33 million. That's three times what the first Star Wars movie wound up costing. Lucas had to give Fox more money from distribution to avoid shutting down, but he refused to give up any merchandise or rights to future sequels and kept Final Cut. So basically, the studio bankrolled him because they had a lot of money and they wanted to see it come out because they were still going to get money off of distribution. Now they were going to get a bigger chunk for stabilizing Lucas's money. So it was a good deal for Fox not a great deal for Lucas but it was what he had to do to keep the trains running on time Ralph McQuarrie returned hot off of his work for the holiday special and Joe Johnson also joined him to make all the conceptual designs for the Empire Strikes Back Gary Kurtz would produce again and one little thing I noted about the artwork, so the ATATs ats were based off a concept vehicle by General Electric in the 60s called the Cybernetic Anthropomorphous Machine, or CAM. It was developed for use in Vietnam, but it turned out to be too tough to operate. So once again, you got another Vietnam connection. There's something about how people thought that he based it off of crates or something, but it's everybody has said that's not the case. It was actually these things that never actually got built. Lee Brackett is who we talked about in the first episode, had written space fantasy pulp novels in addition to El Dorado, The Big Sleep, and The Long Goodbye. And so she worked on story treatments with Lucas. In those story treatments, Lucas intended to make Star Wars bigger than any one actor. So he wrote in some characters as insurance policies. The Emperor was mentioned in A New Hope. He was mentioned again in Empire Strikes Back in case they had to shell Vader. You might recall he had a lot of problems with David Prowse. It's not exactly easy to find a guy that giant to do what he did as Darth Vader. So he wanted an insurance policy for it. He wrote in Luke's twin sister, not yet Leia. This was somebody who was raised on a separate planet. Yes, Leia's backstory, but once again, hadn't got there just yet. And she was there because morbidly enough, when Mark Hamill got in his car accident... George Lucas was worried that if he didn't survive, they would be screwed. So he wrote in that character so that he would have a backup plan for his Jedi. Harrison Ford was signed on for the second movie, which of course he was also forced to do the holiday special with it. But he was not signed on for Return of the Jedi, and Harrison Ford kept insisting that Han Solo should die at the end of Empire. And so as a result, George Lucas wound up writing Lando Calrissian to take his place. You might recall Lando puts on Han's clothes at the end of Empire Fire strikes Back, which is really, really weird. And then, of course, Alec McGinnis, who was never a fan of Star Wars once they actually filmed the thing, even though he was excited to be a space wizard in the first place. He was very tough to get to sign on for sequels, and so he developed Yoda to try and replace Obi-Wan if he needed to. So obviously, none of these characters wound up being replaced, but he had insurance policies for all of them. Really smart if you want a franchise to outlive any one actor. So Leah Brackett turned in the first draft. It broke from continuity in a lot of ways. It had a lot of winks and nods to the audience. George Lucas was prepared to hammer out changes with her. And he had said in that script, it wasn't what he wanted, but he at least knew what he didn't want to do. And before he got a chance to discuss it with her, he found out she was in a hospital and she died a little bit later from cancer. So he wound up going through and writing a second draft, which he actually wrote rather quickly instead of practically wrote itself and he had fun writing it and then he quickly made a third and fourth draft and then he brought on Lawrence Kasdan who was working with them for Raiders of the Lost Ark which if you're curious about that writing process I talk about it in an old podcast I had Biggs on film with my buddy Brandon Beardsley and if you're wondering how many drafts of a script does George Lucas go through well here's what I'll tell you when I was in Hollywood I actually picked up an eighth draft of Raiders of the Lost Lost Ark, and there was a lot of things that were different. There was things from Temple of Doom, there was things from Last Crusade, and they hadn't been separated out of the script yet. And there was things that just straight up did not appear yet. And so I think I heard he went on to do somewhere around ten drafts of Raiders of the Lost Ark. So this is common for him. He does a lot of drafts. That's how you get something tight and where you want it. So Lawrence Kasdan did the final draft. He focused more on the emotive aspects and he made the dialogue a lot less clunky. Those were the things that he really focused on in the final draft and clearly it worked. Irvin Kirshner was brought on to direct. He taught George Lucas at USC and he had done a few movies of his own. Uh, Lucas was too bogged down to direct because he had started a couple of companies, which we'll get into in a minute, and worrying about securing the loans. At first, Kirshner refused to do the movie because he said a sequel couldn't be as good and it certainly wouldn't be as original. His agent changed his mind, basically demanded that he did the project and Kirshner was mainly brought in to work on character development. Kirshner also thinks he might have been brought in because he thought that George Lucas might feel that he'd be able to control Kirshner... Off the set but as it turned out that was not the case at all once you get moving you have peter diamond who played the tuscan raider who's holding up the butt of the rifle over luke and star wars he wound up training mark hamill and david prowse defense you might recall david prowse had no idea what he was doing with the sword and so he taught him and mark hamill how to do it and coordinated that entire lightsaber battle and empire so George Lucas moved industrial light and magic to Marina County with a larger budget. Uh, he had lost all of his ILM employees. Most had gone to a new company named Apogee, which John Dykstra had started. George Lucas had nearly fired Dykstra on Star Wars over the money he spent on cameras that couldn't get the shots that he needed to complete the movie. He relented because Dykstra was close friends with everybody else in ILM. Apogee had just completed the effects for a three-hour pilot for Battlestar Galactica, which played in some theaters. This further pissed off George Lucas because he looked at it as a rip-off that had used the cameras he had budgeted for on Star Wars. He eventually sued them while also rehiring nearly every employee of Apogee back to ILM. A notable exception, of course, was Dykstra. George Lucas also hired Brian Johnson, who worked on 2001 Space Odyssey, which we said before... Big influence on him, hired a lot of their crew. This is a guy who had actually turned down working on Star Wars, so he was brought in to play a pretty big role in making the special effects. A couple fun little things I found out about the special effects. So when they're flying through the asteroid fields, the ones in the backgrounds are often made of potatoes because they seem to work pretty good. And it took about one hour to do one second of stop motion for the tauntauns. So those little tauntauns you you see running by everywhere. That is stop motion that took forever for like a little 10 second scene. That was about 10 hours of work. So pretty intense. George Lucas also created Lucasfilm so that he had studios to film in stateside. And so when they started filming, they found that the snow was really hard to film in because you lose the color on all the shots. And, of course, the worst snowstorm in Norway where they were filming in 20 years hit. It was 20 below zero on some days with 18 feet of snow. Nuts. And then they did principal photography at L Street Studios again. If you ever wonder why so much of the Empire has British accents, this is why it's not because the British Empire is in league with the Empire. They just happen to have the same accent. When they decided to make Yoda, he was designed by Stuart Freeborn, and he based it off of his own face because he thought there was something curious and funny about it. And then he took the wrinkles off of Albert Einstein's forehead to make it look like it was wise. And of course, Frank Oz was the puppeteer because they talked to Jim Henson and Jim Henson was swamped doing the Muppet movie. Freeborn had first tried putting a baby monkey in a Yoda looking suit. Then he contacted Henson who Lucas had already met at L Street filming The Muppet Show. So they built this stage that was five feet high that had holes and ridges that were hidden from the camera with rocks and the way that the ground folded up. And that was so that Frank Oz could puppeteer Yoda and stick his hand up a hole and run it down wherever he had to. No one above the stage could hear the people below the stage or vice versa. And Mark Hamill had an earpiece where he could hear Yoda. Sometimes it picked up AM radio signals when he turned his head a little bit. So he had to pretend like he wasn't hearing the Rolling Stones, as he put it, and he was actually hearing Yoda. Uh, there was also a person working the cables for the ears of Yoda and a person doing cables for the eyes. So it was a pretty big production when you got three people working one puppet. Billy D. Williams was hired to play Lando Calrissian. Lucas liked Williams when he saw him in Ladies Sing the Blues, which was about Billie Holiday, and so he brought him in for the movie. And the script, of course, had a fake page inserted, and that was where the Darth Vader father reveal was told to only Mark Hamill minutes before recording, and we will talk about this very in-depth in the next episode. John Williams conducted the movie again and rehired the London Symphony Orchestra for a price tag of $250,000. The soundtrack alone made so much more money than that. Money well spent. Lucas wanted the same type of opening as the first movie, so he put the screen credits at the end only. This was unusual for a film in 1980. He wouldn't have been hassled about it if it hadn't been for the fact that Star Wars didn't have a Lucasfilm logo at the beginning, and Empire Strikes Back did, which contained his name. So he was fined $250,000 by the Directors Guild, the Writers Guild, and the Motion Picture Association, and they attempted to have Empire pulled from the theater. Obviously, Fox and George Lucas fought back, and they won that battle, but George Lucas didn't want to put his mentor into any trouble, and so he wound up paying all $250,000 of fines, but he also decided to piss all over the guilds, and he dropped out all three of them. Alright, let's start talking about the movie, and I will remind you that when we talk about this first act, we are doing the original cut of the movie. We are not doing the special edition. You can find copies of these on the internet. The legality of it is kind of questionable, or you can just go out and find a VCR tape. But we will be talking about the special editions in season 3. It'll have its own episode. This, of course, starts off again with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And, of course, you get that orchestral blast with the Star Wars. And we see Episode 5. This actually confused a lot of audiences because it was the first time they saw an episode and it was 5. So people were wondering, did I miss something? What the heck is going on? Because George Lucas decided, I'll have some backstory that you don't know about. So the crawl says the Empire Strikes Back, it is a dark time for the Rebellion, although the Death Star has been destroyed, Imperial forces have driven the Rebel forces from their hidden base and pursued them across the galaxy. Evading the dreaded Imperial Starfleet, a group of freedom fighters led by Luke Skywalker has established a new secret base on the remote ice world of Hoth. The evil Lord Darth Vader, obsessed with finding young Skywalker, has dispatched thousands of remote probes into the far reaches of space. And a four-period ellipses, because we're doing this every time, apparently. So Lucas had rewritten some of the scripts, so it started out in space. He decided that every single movie he wanted to start in space... So we see a Star Destroyer heading to the camera spot on. It's not a super impressive opening like that first one. Honestly, it's one of the best openings for a movie ever. So you can't follow that. But I'd say the Empire Strikes Back exceeds the original movie in pretty much every other way. So we see probes launching off out of the Star Destroyer. One of them crashes into Hoth and Luke thinks it's a shooting star and lets his rebel friends know as much. We, of course, know it's an Imperial droid that's popping its head up and looking around, and it floats away. Luke rides his little tauntaun, talks on his communicator, and lets him know that he's going to check out that meteoroid that fell. And then the tauntaun kind of freaks out, and looks like, what, do you smell something? And then, of course, you get the wampa comes right out and you just see its head kind of growl. And then you see the hand smack Luke in the face. And we see his right side of his face for the very first time. Of course, that's because of that car accident. And he got a scar on his face. And so this was a way to cover that up. The very first scene of the movie, I think that they did it on purpose. And I think that they also told Mark Hamill that it was already in the script because they probably didn't want him to feel bad or remind him about the accident. I also wonder how he must have felt. Thinking about the fact that, like, he was finding a way to replace him in the script in case he died, it's kind of weird. It's like when you find out that Walmart took out an insurance policy on you. And we got Chewbacca is working on the Millennium Falcon welding stuff, and of course he's upset at Han Solo because, let's face it, he's covered with hair and he's welding? That's a really bad job for Chewie. Not a good idea at all. Han tells the general that he needs to leave because Jabba's got a price on his head. So the guy shakes his hand and says that he'll miss Han Solo. He's a good fighter. And of course, Princess Leia looks kind of irritated at him. He gives a, uh, well, your highness, I guess this is it. And then she says, I guess it is. And he says, well, don't get all mushy on me. And then she yells, Han, I thought you had decided to stay. And he says, well, the bounty hunter and Ord Mandela ran into changed my mind, which by the way, We are going to hear that story about Ord Mandel. That's going to be, I believe, episode 14 or 15, somewhere around there. I can't remember now. Anyway, so Princess Leia is still yelling at Han. We kind of get to the bottom of this, which is he thinks that she has feelings for him and she's absolutely denying it and people are coming and going around them. They're just ignoring everybody and fighting in front of everybody. It seems like they're pretty used to this. She says, I'd rather kiss a Wookiee than you. And he says, that can be arranged. And then we see R2-D2 and C-3PO running down to talk to Han Solo. And he's super annoyed, not just from fighting with Princess Leia, but he's trying to get the Falcon in working order. And C-3PO is trying to tell him that Luke hasn't come back yet. And Han Solo immediately just covers his mouth, which I guess works because the speaker must be in his mouth and asks the guy if he had come through. And he said, no, I didn't see him in the south entrance. And so he tells him to go double check. But C-3PO lets us know that he thinks Luke's in danger. And by the way, this is the perfect character to realize somebody's in danger because C-3PO is worried about danger at all times. So he is the perfect person to notice. And I also like that Han is going out to get him with the Tauntauns because we saw that he swooped in with the Falcon to help out Luke at the end of A New Hope. But this just really solidifies that they are friends. They will do anything for each other at this point. It wasn't a moment of weakness. Han Solo is generally a... Change person. And so I really like that. Even though he's having a familiar kind of fight with Princess Leia, he's still going out. Uh, We see a bunch of bones in the Wampa's lair. I like this because Star Wars loves to have giant skeletons everywhere. It's just a thing they love to do, just have ribs all over the place. Luke's hanging upside down. Kind of reminds me of I remember seeing a meme where somebody took a Luke Kenner figure and put it in their freezer and froze it with him hanging upside down. (laughs) I always thought that was really funny. Luke's lightsaber is just out of reach. And you might recall at this point, we haven't seen Luke be able to reach out and move things with the force yet. Like He's able to figure out targeting. He's able to block lasers. And he's able to hear Obi-Wan talk to him. I think that's about it that we've really seen for force powers for Luke at this point. So the lightsaber shakes a little bit. We see the Wampa come out and just right on time, the lightsaber jumps into his hand and he cuts himself out of the ice. The Wampa runs forward and he cuts off its arm and then runs out of the cave. It'll be one of several arms that we see go off in this movie. Of course, we saw one at the Mos Eisley Cantina. I do like that George Lucas never really shied away from severing limbs. There's not a lot of blood in Star Wars, but there's definitely limbs being cut off left and right. So Luke goes running out into a snowbank. Seems hopeless for him. Han comes running up on a tauntaun. He's still looking around. And then we see R2-D2 and C-3PO are outside in the snow looking for Luke and Clearly, they have to give up, so they have to go back in before the Bombay doors close. And we get that sad shot of Chewbacca screaming as the door closes. I do love that Chewbacca just never fails to be emotive when he needs to be. And of course, we see Leia looking a little bit worried, but she's of course trying to hide her feelings because it's Luke and Han out there. And at this point, it's definitely a love triangle. We see Luke looks like he's dying and he sees Obi-Wan who calls out to him and he tells him he needs to go to the Dagobah system. And he says, there you will learn from Yoda, the Jedi master who instructed me. And I think literally all Luke says in response is Ben, Ben, Ben. And I think he repeats Dagobah system once. (laughs) And that's when Han Solo rides up and sees him and screams out, Luke, Luke. And then the Tauntaun kind of screams out because it's gotten too cold for him. And so Han gives it a look, gets Luke's lightsaber and cuts him open. It says, and I thought they smelled bad on the outside. And by the way, let's never forget. They totally smell bad on the outside. Clearly. (laughs) but also smelled totally bad on the inside. And then we see a couple of ships fly over some mountaintops, and they see Han trying to get their attention with some flares. Wedge, of course, notices him. Wedge is like the unsung hero of these movies, because he's got a name, and he's in all three of them. He's even in the sequel trilogy, so that's something. We never got to see baby Wedge that I know of in the prequels, but maybe I'm not a big enough fan to be able to notice that. And then Wedge is trying to find luke or han and han says nice of you to stop by and then we cut over to luke in the bacta tank wearing a giant depends diaper it looks like (laughs) scene always makes me kind of uncomfortable i really hate the way that this scar looks in there it's just everything about it is really gross looking he's sitting out and c-3po's happy to see him fully functional again and lets him know that r2 is relieved as well and then Han Solo seems genuinely happy that he's there and not dead and tells him, you look strong enough to pull the ears off a of Gundar or whatever the hell that is. He says, that's two you owe me, Jr. He says, well, your warship looks like you managed to keep me a little bit longer. She said, I had nothing to do with it. No ships are allowed to leave the system until the storm has passed. And he says, that's a good story. I don't think you'd like to let a gorgeous guy like me out of your sight. She goes, I don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain. And Chewie laughs at him and Han cannot take this. And he says, laugh it up, fuzzball. But you didn't see us alone in the South Passage. She expressed her true feelings for me, which is true. It's frustration. That's her true feelings for her. But she calls him a scruffy looking nerf herder. He looks pissed and he says, who's scruffy looking? I'll be honest. He looks a little bit hurt at this point. And then he says, I must have hit pretty close to the mark to get her all riled up like that. Right, kid? And by the way, the sexual tension is just flying here. It's probably a good time to mention, because I think I forgot to mention last episode, Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher bought two tickets to Itville while they were making these movies. I'm just saying, like, we kind of found that out right before Carrie Fisher died.
1: Hey, pigs, why don't you let me do some of the heavy lifting here? Sure, I
0: could use a little bit of water.
1: So Leia gives a slight nod and comes in with purpose. She challenges Han, tells him he doesn't know everything yet. She turns towards Luke. Her mouth is slightly open, her gaze fixed on his scarred yet handsome visage. She reaches her arms out and extends her fingers out to grasp onto the rugged jawline of Luke. She pulls him towards her with vigor, and he receives her. She surprises him when her tongue is intertwined with his, the hunger she felt. She's never been so excited, so...
0: seriously. You only barged in here to give another creepy description of Luke and Leia?
1: Creepy? I thought it was pretty good with the description.
0: I'm not denying that, but you got a job to do, and it's keeping me from getting toxic, like 99% of the fan base. And I sobered up after last episode, and what did I hear? You're failing at your job.
1: Well, it was a holiday special, like you said, and you did have like six glasses of wine. And who
0: bought the bottle and insisted that I drink three glasses with you? Why would you do that?
1: I... With
0: wildfire, I suppose.
1: Cersei and Jamie are so hot together.
0: Enough, go. (sighs) So Luke leans back smugly and Han goes stomping out. And so the captain mentions to Luke, Leia, Chewie, and C-3PO that the Imperials are here. And C-3PO definitely confirms it because the thing that they're hearing is an Imperial droid. And it's doing this blah, blah, blah,
1: blah, 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 blah.
0: And that is a sound effect, I believe, from THX 1138. And Han goes out and blows up the Imperial droid. And we see Chewie with his big snowy nose kind of pop up. And so they start the evacuation. We see a couple of Star Destroyers floating around. And some TIE fighters flying back and forth. And we see Darth Vader's TIE fighter, which you can tell because it's curved. It looks different. And then we see Darth Vader watching all the ships while the shininess on the back of his helmet is there, which I really like. He's got the catwalk across the pit where everybody's working on stuff. And Captain Piat calls for the Admiral and mentions that there's a probe droid that's got something. And the Admiral's saying that he needs proof. And he's saying, but there's not supposed to be any life readings in Hoth, which they mentioned earlier, and I probably forgot to mention. Darth Vader sees the little bit of the rebel base, and he says that's got to be it. And of course, the Admiral talks crap back to him and says that there's so many uncharted settlements and says it could be smugglers. And then immediately, Darth Vader just shuts him down and says, Skywalker's with them. Set your course for the Hoth system. Tells General Mears to prepare their men. And the Admiral shoots a nasty look at Captain Piet. And then we see Chewie is in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon while Han's trying to fix it on the outside. And Chewie tries to start it up. And then Han almost catches on fire because he's also very flammable. Not as flammable as Chewie, but pretty flammable. Then a droid's talking to Luke for a minute. And he's got a microphone that looks pretty similar to the one I'm talking into right now. Uh, Luke tells Chewie to take care of himself. And then Chewie gives him a really big hug. then Han checks if Luke's all right. And he says, yeah, I am. He just kind of gives him a knowing look. And then Han tells him to be careful. And he says, you too. And what I really like about the scene is it mirrors when they leave each other in a new hope. But it's in a very different way. When he's leaving in a new hope. There's an internal struggle in him that he wants to stay and fight the good fight. But he just can't get past his selfishness in that moment. And Luke can't believe how selfish he's being because he can see that little kernel of goodness inside him. And this they realize, oh, he's totally coming back. But he really does have to go pay off this debt to Jabba the Hutt and get him off his butt. So I like that. I like that they're both grown up enough to kind of see what's going on. So we've got the captain saying that the admiral stopped at a light speed. And he thought that they would try and surprise him. And Vader's not happy about this because he feels like he's being sloppy. And so Vader puts him on the view screen. And (laughs) the Admiral says, Vader, we just left Lightspeed. And then Vader immediately starts strangling him with the Force and saying, you've failed me for the last time. And then he promotes Captain Piat to Admiral Piat. And... It's funny because he's got this look like, oh, nice, I'm being promoted, but this dude's dying next to me, but I'm getting promoted. So the Empire, there's a lot of opportunity to advance if you're working for Vader. As long as you don't piss off Vader, you can go right to the top because everybody ahead of you is going to screw up and die. Leia addresses all the troops, lets them know what to do, and they get ready in some trenches with some cannons and so forth. It's kind of reminiscent of World War I. They're worried that the Empire is going to go for the generators, so they're telling them to protect those at all costs. And then they have a gunship that's hidden within this rock immediately fires up and hits the star destroyer and actually blows up the star destroyer right as this transport is flying by and so the transport gets through everybody cheers it and then after cheering everybody runs to their x-wings to get into them with the exception of leia and a couple of people that are looking over the radar you get dax saying right now i feel like i could take on the empire myself luke says yeah i know what you mean but he's kind of got this world-weary look on his face and that's interesting too because he's now in the place that han was but without the selfishness this. Like We've seen Luke grow in between these movies. We realize that he's a hardened warrior. He's had a very long two or three years that he's been doing this. So we see it on his face. We see it in his reactions. And then we see all the AT-ATs opening fire on the Rebels. And of course, we've got Wedge and Dak and Luke and other random fighters coming out. And the way Dak acts with Luke in the cockpit. And how they have this friendliness. They might as well set up him being like, yep, can't wait to go back to uh, my place on Jakku. Got a moisture farm out there. Got a lady. We're going to have a white picket fence. We're going to have Banthas out there. And we're going to milk the Banthas every day. And it's going to be a beautiful life. We're going to have two kids. Like, you might as well say all that. Because you know Dax's dead. Uh, They try and open fire on the AT-ATs. And, of course, none of it will work because they're too heavily armored. So Luke tells them to get the tow cables ready and fire them and wrap them around the AT-ATs. And, of course, right away, he gets hit. Dak goes down in the back. So we watch them get the tow cables and wrap around a couple of legs of AT-ATs. And they find that they can blow them up by hitting the necks, which isn't really explained. But they definitely do that later in stuff like Star Wars Rebels. Uh, they aim for the necks and that. And they don't do the tow cable thing because they don't want to rip off Empire Strikes Back. And they totally blew it up that way. So I like that they're at least consistent about it. R2 is being lifted into an X-Wing for Luke. And C-3PO is telling him to take care. We've got Han yelling at Chewie. No, no, this cable here, that cable there. Still having problems with the Falcon. Luke's ship crashes. He tries to get out of it, get his lightsaber and everything, and he manages to get out right before the AT-AT crushes it. And then we've got Han running out, and he finds Leia and kind of forces her to go with him. And so he's trying to run her to a transport, and of course C-3PO comes running in their wake. And then Luke manages to take a tow cable and shoot it up at the ATAT, and he goes up to the top of it, cuts a hole with his lightsaber, throws a bomb in there, drops down, and watches the ATAT explode. Uh, Han and Leia come running to a dead end because a, it seems like a bomb goes off or something. All this rebel falls down, so he realizes he has to take her to the Falcon leia says should i get out and push when the millennium falcon won't start which is hilarious because i don't know how that would work in the star wars universe do speeders ever break down you have to push to get them started i don't know it just it's a funny joke but it's one that falls apart a little bit i need some kind of explanation to make that work we have darth vader showing up and he's got some stormtroopers with White hoods. And I never really thought about this until I was watching it super close for this. But that's really weird. There's like basically KKK stormtroopers. So it's a good thing they're the bad guys at least. If it was Rebels, you'd be like, what the hell is this movie trying to say? So the Falcon flies off right as Darth Vader's walking in. Kind of sees them go away. You see like an X-Wing pilot watching them fly off. And then all the Rebels are getting ready to go to their rendezvous point and luke jumps into his x-wing with r2 and he put in different coordinates and says don't worry r2 i know where i'm going r2 puts up a bunch of jumbled nonsense on the screen that's supposed to be what luke can read but it's jumbled nonsense it really is and luke lets r2 know he's not gonna go with everybody else he's gonna go to the dagobah system and r2 is kind of nagging him and he says yes r2 that's right i'd like to keep it on manual control for a while and then we see the Star Destroyer and I believe four TIE fighters chasing the Millennium Falcon. They're having all kinds of problems. Chewie's yelling, and Han's telling him, I saw, him. I saw him. Star Destroyers, two of them coming right at us. C3PO is freaking out. Han is yelling to shut him down. He's telling Chewie to check the deflector shields, and he's trying to outmaneuver him. So he goes right in between a couple of Star Destroyers, which almost hit each other. And you see people fly all over the Star Destroyer. Han tells him to prepare for light speed. And he pulls the switch. And nothing happens. He can't go to light speed. So he runs down to his little Falcon hole thing. His Jeffrey tubes, if you will. To try and fix it. And they get hit by something. And so the toolbox falls down and presumably hits his head. And that's how you know he's actually working on something. Because you're not really fixing something unless you hurt yourself badly doing it. I learned that from my dad. I've definitely followed that. And it turns out they're in an asteroid field. And I would like to point out that in real life, I found out from an astronomer that I was listening to on NPR that asteroids and asteroid fields tend to be hundreds of thousands of miles from each other. It's just that when you look at it from space... It's so far away, they look very close, but they're not close at all. So you wouldn't see a situation like this where they have to weave in and out of the rocks. But obviously, it's more exciting. I'd rather have the fake thing than the real thing. So I'm just saying. Eventually, they find a really big asteroid and Han Solo flies into it, not quite knowing what's the deal with the cave he's going into. There's some TIE fighters that are destroyed by rocks as he's in the process of doing this. And of course, on the way, C-3PO is telling him the odds of success are... And he says, never tell me the odds, which I love. It's one of those super quotable Star Wars lines. So when they're in the cave, Leia says, I hope you know what you're doing. And he says, yeah, me too. You see it flying down and we get a wipe to Luke Skywalker pulling up to the planet of Dagobah. And we are going to stop right here. So I'll talk to you guys next week when we do Act 2 of Empire Strikes Back, and we're going to talk in depth about that big reveal at the end of the movie in Act 3. You know the one. May the
1: Force be with you. something out of it again why do you make me do this never mind go clean the ports on M3
0: we have so many shows on the not safer network download the entire first season of the show not afraid of the Star Wars fan base but maybe it should be Jedi master's degree two movies enter and only one movie leaves listen to box office battle. Learn the history of television one show at a time with the podcast In Syndication. Music, anime, pop culture, movies, TV show, and the random babbling of two dudes who need to find something better to do. Check out A Feast of Geeks, the podcast that's perfectly described with its title, Movies with Wrestlers, and download the entire first season of the radio drama about a serial killer ripped from the pages of a hundred-year-old cookbook, A Thousand Ways to Please a Husband.